This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Novartis, taking action to reduce the barriers and address the disparities women can face in accessing cancer screenings, treatment, and clinical roles. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmina Boutalib, a health policy reporter here at The Post. Today's program is part of our Chasing Cancer series, and my guests are here to talk about women's health, cancer, and how the pandemic has shifted the landscape for women. My first guest is Pally Martini, CEO of Breast Cancer UK. Pally, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me. A reminder to our audience, we want you to join our conversation, so tweet your questions and comments to the handle at Post Live. Now I want to get to our conversation. Globally, breast cancer is now the most common type of cancer diagnosed worldwide with over 2 million new cases in 2020 alone. Tally, can you talk to us about the work you're doing to heighten awareness about breast cancer prevention? Sure. Well, as you as you mentioned, we at Breast Cancer UK, we're passionate about prevention and we're passionate about putting prevention first, both in terms of public policy, but also awareness. Um, and there's a very good reason for that. And that's because it's estimated that between a quarter and two thirds of breast cancers that are diagnosed every year could actually be prevented because they have in fact been linked to preventable risk factors. So we believe that's a really, really important reason for prevention to be taken very seriously and for awareness of prevention to be um, something that is a top priority. So we've been doing this for 20 years. Um, So the work that we do is very much about public awareness. Uh, So we produce education content on our website, but we also provide support to people so they can understand um, what the risk factors are in their lives and how they can take action importantly to reduce their risk. But we do a lot more than that as well. So we fund research. Um, We believe actually that prevention is an area of research that's been quite neglected and of course, understandably, research into treatment and into care and into cures is really important. It's made a huge difference actually to the mortality rate of um, uh, breast cancer over the past 50 years. And so the rates have thankfully, uh, the the mortality rates have thankfully really reduced by over 35%. But as you've mentioned, what we have seen over the past 50 years is a consistent increase in the incidence rate. So in the UK, for example, incidence rates have doubled in the past 50 years. we believe that there is something in our lifestyle, there's something in our environment that is contributing to that. And so that's why we're devoting all of our investment in scientific research into exploring the um, lesser understood uh, risk factors and the causes of breast cancer. And then the other thing that we do that's really important is that we raise awareness at a public policy level because we also feel that there's a neglect around uh, prevention um, priorities. Um, so that's our work and and the really important thing about our work is is ensuring that people understand why prevention is so important. Um, so talking about you know risk reduction, for example. Well, because you've been doing this so long, I'm curious how you've seen the pandemic shift the landscape in the UK. We know that in the US, there's been a a dramatic impact on screenings and prevention measures, of course, because, um, you know, elective surgeries and procedures were, were delayed for so long. And then still there was fear of people going into the hospital. So what impact have you seen in the UK and how is it compared to the sort of general trend that you've been seeing 
in screening and prevention? Yeah, I mean, we've seen very similar impacts. So uh, huge delays in people uh, receiving any screening services, even being able to attend GP surgeries. And so what that le that's what, what that's led to essentially is uh, people not um, getting their diagnosis or not having an early detection because early detection is very, very important when it comes to breast cancer. Early detection can lead to a full recovery. Um, and so that is something that we're seeing uh, being delayed more and more. We're also concerned that the impact of COVID will take a long time for services to recover. And so ultimately that could lead to a lot of people having much poorer outcomes uh, once they do get the diagnosis. Um, so I do think that's that's a, a trend you know, across the world. We see this as uh, underlining the importance of prevention action and awareness about prevention. So, um, so many people aren't aware that there are lots of things that they can do in their everyday life to reduce their risk. Um, there's uh, There are some very well understood um, risk factors such as uh, what we eat. So it's quite, it's well understood that, you know, eating um, a diet that's high in fruit and vegetables, that can help with lots of other um, risk reduction, but it also helps with reducing uh, breast cancer risk. Being physically active, um, that can reduce our, our breast cancer risk by up to 20%. But the other important thing about physical activity is that it really is like a magical pill. Um, it can reduce our risk of recurrence if we've had a diagnosis very significantly, and it can also reduce our mortality rate after we've had a diagnosis by up to 40%. So regular physical activity, we're not talking about marathons or crossing the channel, we're, we're talking about bringing um, simple, moderate exercise into our everyday lives on a regular basis that has a huge impact. Um, and then other risk factors include alcohol consumption. So reducing our alcohol intake is very important as well for reducing our risk. Um, and, and then exposure to um, harmful chemicals in the environment. Now that's a lesser understood understood risk factor. And so um, there's been a lot of evidence over recent years to suggest that endocrine disrupting chemicals, which are quite ubiquitous in our environment, have been linked to increased breast cancer risk. And that's an area of particular concern to us, um, primarily because there is so much more research that needs to be invested in this area for us to really understand the impact that EDCs have on our general health, but importantly in our case uh, with breast cancer. So that's an area that we invest in as a charity. Uh, we're one of the few charities, certainly in the UK, that invests in research that looks into the links between EDCs and breast cancer risk. And, um, and of course, uh, we raise awareness at a government level so that um, government is aware that it's very important to put environmental protections in place to protect the public. So there's a range of factors that will contribute to increasing our risk. And if we take action now urgently, then we can reduce the amounts of people who hear the words you have breast cancer. Um, and this is such an important thing now, given that there's such a stress on our services uh, across the world, but we're seeing it in the UK just as much. From your vantage point, which countries or governments do you think are doing the best job or an exemplary job or or just even have strategies that maybe other countries should adopt in detecting and treating breast cancer? Yes, I, I think really across the developed world, we have 
you know, similar levels of screening services, which are all, you know, effective. Um, what I'm concerned about is that most of these services across the world have been impacted. So not just screening services for breast cancer, but, you know, other early detection services for, for other cancers as well. Um, what we find in, um, say European countries is that we have a legislation in place um, that uh, up until recently the UK also was involved in that has um, protections in place uh, and regulations in place for certain chemicals in our environment. Now that is a gold standard um, which in uh, the long term will have a very positive impact on reducing our exposures to EDCs and as I mentioned earlier on we are concerned um, that our exposure to EDCs is contributing to these increasing incidence rates. So that gold standard is something that, that we as a charity look to. We want it to be duplicated and we want it to be really followed in the UK, um, very importantly, so that we can maintain and also improve those protections. Um, but in terms of uh, treatment uh, interventions uh, and detection, you know, we have gold standard services here in the UK as much as um, in Europe and in, in the US, but we do know that they've been impacted quite significantly by, by, um, by the pandemic. So there seems to be a correlation between some of these prevention techniques and advanced industrialized countries where breast cancer rates are higher. Can you help us understand why that seems to be the case? Well, I think what I what I can explain is that what the research tells us about incidence rates and the research tells us that in affluent uh, regions, so regions such as the USA, um, uh, the UK, Europe, Australasia, the incidence rates are much, much higher than in less affluent uh, regions. So places like South Central Asia or the Middle East and, and most of Africa. Um, in fact, the rates are four times higher in those regions. So as I mentioned earlier on, there, there definitely appears to be something in our lifestyle um, and in our environment that is leading to this increased incidence rates, particularly in, in uh, affluent nations. Although we are seeing incidence rates going up in some of the, um, the less affluent regions as well. Um, but there are protective risk factors as well that um, are very important for breast cancer, such as uh, breastfeeding, for example, and such as uh, having uh, children at an earlier age. And in wealthier regions, uh, potentially breastfeeding rates are lower and people are having fewer children. But then there are lots of other risk factors as well, such as what we eat, um, such as how physically active we are, and also the exposures that we might have in our everyday life or in our occupation as well to, to chemicals. Um, and then air pollution, that plays a role as well. So there's a number of factors that collectively um, will contribute to our breast cancer risk. But what the, what the data does tell us is that in those wealthier nations, uh, the rates are certainly much higher. What other actions can be taken to close the gaps for women and breast cancer patients in the United Kingdom? Well, closing the gap in terms of reducing rates, I can I can certainly uh, I can certainly talk to that. And there's a number of things we can we can do individually. 
And then there's a number of things that government can do at a public level. So I mentioned uh, earlier on about legislation to um, reduce our exposure to, uh, to chemicals that can increase our risk. But there are also uh, policies that uh, government can put in place really to put uh, prevention first and prevention education first so that it's something that's available to patients when they when they speak to their GPs for example so supporting supporting um, health professionals as well to support their patients around prevention action so understanding um, what to uh, what what's a healthy diet so for example having lots of fruit and vegetables that are high in carotenoids um, they can help reduce our risk um, how to uh, supporting people to maintain a healthy weight and supporting people to um, be uh, regularly physically active uh, with uh, expectant uh, mothers as well, supporting uh, and also providing education around breastfeeding. Um, there are a number of things that uh, people can do both at an individual level, but also at a policy level, supporting prevention throughout our lives could make a huge difference in, in really bridging that bridging that gap and bringing those incidence rates down. And building on that question, what what is being done to encourage young women to get screened earlier or to take some of the preventative measures that you've laid out? Well, I think the awareness level uh, of young people is quite low around uh, how prevention is important in their lives as well. I think there's an expectation, and, and I can relate to that when I was young as well, an expectation that breast cancer is an older person's disease, which in reality it is. I mean, uh, most breast cancers will be uh, diagnosed in women over 50. However, it's never too, never too soon to start to take prevention seriously. So um, we do have a number of charities in the UK that support young women to be aware of their breasts. And that's the most important thing is to be aware of our bodies and aware of our breasts and know what to look for. So understand when to check um, our breasts and also how frequently to check our breasts. And that is the most important thing for young women to, to think about, first of all, is to know their bodies and if and to know what to look for, what the signs are of, um, of breast cancer. But then to understand how they can put action into their lives so that over the course of their whole lifetime, they're able to take action to reduce their risk of ever developing the disease in the first place. And I, I don't think there's a general understanding in the community uh, with young women around these, um, these actions that they can take. And we're taking it seriously because we're developing content and resources specifically for um, high school age uh, young people to provide them with you know, education material that they can engage with, that they can relate to, to help them understand that actually they can do things now that are gonna really benefit them in the future. You had mentioned at the start of our conversation how much the landscape has shifted in the last 50 years. And I I want to ask you because the number of new cancer cases worldwide in 2040 is expected to be 47% higher than in 2020 with breast cancer becoming the most common type of cancer diagnosed. So what are some of the immediate actions that need to be taken now to maybe help make that number lower over the next 20 or a little bit less years? Yes, you're absolutely right. We are expecting cases to just keep climbing. Uh, alongside that, we know we're managing cancer much, much better, but what we wanna see is the rates coming down. And so those measures really require a combination of um, research, 
So really significant research into prevention. So we really we understand more about what the risk factors are. So we, we know a lot about the risk factors, but there are lots of areas that we still don't understand enough on. So we definitely need to see more investment in research. It's something that we as a charity want to do, but we can't do it alone. Um, so investment in research, so we understand what action we can take. Obviously, public awareness raising, making it you know a very general knowledge and general understanding of what the things are that, that we can do to reduce our risk of developing breast cancer. I think a lot of people think that breast cancer is an inevitability. Not all breast cancers are preventable, but a good proportion are. And if we understand how to reduce that risk, that will certainly go some way towards reducing the incidence rates and, and reducing uh, the increase in, in incidence rates. And then finally, it's, it's that public policy, making sure that we have those protections in place, because it's not just about behaviour change. That has a, an impact, obviously, but, but good, strong public health policies that are in place to support prevention, that can make a huge difference. So really, it's about knowledge, understanding what the risk factors are, what the causes are, and then putting that knowledge into action so that the public is aware of what they can do to reduce their risk. But then that action needs to also be translated into policy areas that protect people um, and that support them um, to, to reduce their risk so that you know cancer doesn't occur in the first place. And we have about two minutes left, so I want to ask you on a final note, how are you addressing the gaps in cancer education among different communities of women in the United Kingdom? How do you specify outreach to, to various groups? And is there data that you use to determine who's at highest risk and how you might target some of those outreach efforts? Yeah. No, that's a great question. And, and it is something that we're very, very committed to achieving. So I've mentioned younger women. That's an area of um, that's an area that we haven't traditionally engaged as well with. So we want to be able to engage with younger women. So we're talking to younger women in in their communities to understand what's important to them. But then also across communities, there's a whole cohort of people who, who won't have access to our information. So we believe that working with health professionals to support health professionals to better understand how they can provide guidance and advice to people in their communities as well is very, very important. Um, so that's that's a piece of work that we believe is important that we will, we will carry out as well. Another area that we're focusing on this year is cancer in men, because men, breast cancer in men, because men can get breast cancer too. So in, you know, the incidence rates are much, much lower in breast cancer, but nevertheless, men can develop breast cancer. And I don't know if that's commonly understood either. Um, so we are talking to men directly because there is obviously a stigma and there has been a stigma in men talking about how breast cancer might affect them. Um, so we've been talking to, about, to men about how we can develop some education resources for them as well. And we'll be releasing that later on this year as well. Um, so the work that we do is very much uh, gaining insights, talking to our supporters um, and then going out and talking to those different communities to understand what kind of information is important to them, how we can how we can produce uh, education material that's going to be accessible to them um, and then working with them to to develop that information. And really quickly, what advice would you give to you know, the audience watching, particularly the women watching, about how they can best take care of themselves and, and try to stay on top of the screening and prevention measures that you work so hard on? Well, I think there's a few lines of defenses that we, we can uh, really um, we can really vouch for. Um, first of all, 
be breast aware. So understanding your breasts, so that means checking your breasts at the same time every month, regardless of your age. If you're young, your risk of developing breast cancer is very low, but it's great to get into the right habits at a young age. If you're older, particularly postmenopausal, that's when your risk starts to increase. So being breast aware is very important. Now, that aside, there are many actions also we can take. So as we get older, a lot of older ladies will, will feel that, well, you know, it's uh, it's inevitable now, there's nothing I can do. Well, actually prevention action is really relevant when we are older. Um, so there's lots of things uh, that um, we can do after the age of 50, after after the age of menopause. So reducing alcohol intake is, is a really good way to reduce our risk. There's some very strong evidence linking alcohol consumption to um, breast cancer a risk. The more we drink, the more our risk goes up. Being physically active when we're older and keeping our weight down is also very, very important. So having a healthy weight, particularly postmenopausal, is um, known to uh, reduce our risk. Um, and, and also for people who are considering, considering taking hormone therapy, for example, it's good to talk to your GP about that because there are um, known um, also links between uh, hormone um, HRT and, and breast cancer as well. So um, keeping physically active, having a, a good balanced diet. So when we think about a good balanced diet, we can refer to a Mediterranean diet, so a diet high in fruit and vegetables, keeping alcohol consumption low, and, and then thinking about also, um, you know, reducing our, um, our intake of uh, fat and sugar to keep our weight down as well. Well, we're unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much, Tally Martini. This was a terrific discussion. Thank you. I'll be back in just a few minutes with our next guest, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Greetings, my name is Zainab Selby. I'm the founder of Women for Women International. And the focus of our conversation today is uh, addressing the continued challenges faced by women to access uh, cancer screenings and treatments. I'll be in conversation with Rashima Kamspalanko, Executive Vice President and Head of Novartis Oncology US, on actions that uh, Novartis is taking to reduce the barriers to address the disparities women can face in accessing cancer screening, treatment, and possible solutions for improving outcomes among women in both the short and long terms. Uh, Rashima, welcome to this conversation. Thank you so much. It is a great pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. Thank you. Shima, the challenges in women's cancers are multifaceted. You yourself had a personal experience with your best friend's diagnosis. Of all the challenges, which do you consider to be the biggest or would have the most impact if addressed? It's a really pivotal question. And uh, I think the first one I would say is early detection or screening. Uh, we know that uh, screening and early detection saves lives. And uh, we also have learned that uh, through the pandemic, um, at least in 2020, we saw a dramatic decrease in the number of cancer screenings, particularly in the space of breast cancer and cervical cancer, where some of the screening rates were down uh, anywhere from 80 to 90%. And that is 
definitely concerning because uh, lack of screening delays diagnosis and delays treatment and can really put uh, uh, patients' lives at risk. Uh, so this is a very important piece. The second one is access. Uh, making sure that uh, even when patients are screened properly and they're diagnosed, that they have access to medicines um, at the right time. Um, and so this is something that Novartis Oncology is committed to and is of great um, concern uh, for us uh, to help be a part of that solution. Um, and you mentioned uh, very near and dear to my heart, my uh, very best friend, um, and we lost her, unfortunately, in 2020 um, at 48 years old. Um, she was actually diagnosed when we were 38, and I say 38 because we are uh, actually one day apart. We were uh, we were born one day apart, and um, we were college roommates, and she was the godmother to my children. We were very close. She was like a sister to me. And uh, she was diagnosed at 38 and, and went through six months of treatment, uh, which was successful. Um, and we thought that uh, she was in remission and in some ways cured. And then at the age of 46, the cancer returned and it was metastatic. Um, and uh, what was incredibly inspiring about my friend and her legacy is her sense of hope and always having a plan. And uh, this is one of uh, the things I'm really a proponent of is having a plan. And part of that plan is ensuring that uh, screenings are occurring on time. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I can't think of a better way to honor her life uh, than the work that you are actually doing with Novartis. Um, you had mentioned a lot of the structural barriers to care, uh, including access to screening, as you uh, just mentioned earlier. What can be done to boost screening rates in underserved communities? I think the first step is really understanding what are those disparities uh, that we keep hearing about. If you just take women, for instance, uh, we know that women generally have higher health care costs uh, and they face uh, uh, really unique uh, challenges, uh, you know, things as, as basic and simple, uh, but yet complex as, you know, having uh, appropriate child care. And I also know, you know, as a woman myself, you know, who tends to be the caregiver in my family, sometimes, you know, we uh, neglect ourselves. We put ourselves last and we're very selfless and uh, we neglect our own self-care. And so there, it, it is multi-factorial, uh, uh, but what can we do about it? And we're already doing some things as Novartis in terms of partnering uh, with uh, wonderful organizations like the American Cancer Society, where we have the Get Screened program really aimed at education and ensuring that screenings um, or the lack of screenings that we've seen during uh, the pandemic, that we can get those back on track, particularly in underserved uh, communities. Um, the second thing I will mention is uh, a program that we call More Than Just Words, and that's really focused on African-American Black women facing breast cancer and helping to educate them uh, about what questions they should be asking, screening, uh, biomarker education, as well as um, self-care. And finally, also working with the multidisciplinary team around how can we better educate even healthcare providers around um, you know, healthcare disparities. 
Now, last but not least, um, there's so much talk about when it comes to breast, women and, and cancer, there's so much more focus on breast and cervical cancers. I'm interested in learning what other uh, areas of cancer treatments do you believe require more focus uh, than they are currently receiving? And before we end, I also want to talk about you know, what do you think companies like Novartis could be doing more to potentially improve uh, outcomes? Yes. Um, so in addition to breast cancer and cervical cancer, we're seeing an increase in uh, diagnosis of lung cancer uh, in women, uh, particularly in high-income uh, geographies. Uh, in addition to that, um, also colorectal cancer, uh, when both men and women should be screened by age 45. And so between breast, cervical, lung, and colorectal, those are four cancers right there that if we can get ahead of those, uh, we can really save lives. In terms of what uh, Novartis' commitment and what more we can be doing, uh, it first starts with innovation. We must continue innovation from a research and development standpoint uh, to uh, really follow the boldest science uh, that may lead us to cures, uh, or life extension, and um, also partnerships are critical. Uh, and partnerships with an industry, with government, and uh, in, in private uh, stakeholders, because this is a very complex disease and no one entity will solve it alone. We must all work together uh, to save even more lives. Thank you very much, Rashima. I know I have learned a lot uh, from all that you shared. It's truly an honor uh, to know you and to know of your amazing work. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Yasmina Botalib. Joining me now is Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, so you know. who battled cancer privately after being diagnosed at age 41 with breast cancer. Thank Representative, you. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Yasmin, and thank you to the Washington Post for doing this really important feature on breast cancer and the decline in screenings. Well, we're thrilled to have you today. A reminder to our audience, we want you to join our conversation, so tweet your comments and questions to the handle at PostLive. Congresswoman, I want to dive into our conversation about uh, breast cancer screening and prevention, but while we have you, I want to ask you about um, you know, the news that we're seeing dominate this week which is this escalating situation uh, with Russia. Ukraine this morning declared a state of emergency. The White House is defending a first tranche of sanctions on Russia. Do you think President Biden's step-by-step -step approach to sanctions will work? And do you think that they'll hold Putin back from any further incursion? Well, let me just be very clear that uh, Putin's encroachment on the sovereignty of an independent nation is an absolute outrage. and in all the years that I have been in Congress, which is going on 18, um, I've never seen the, the world more united against an aggressor like, like the world is united against Putin right now. And making sure that the initial extremely biting sanctions that President Biden has imposed along with our allies, including the closure of, uh, of Nord Stream 2, is going to really be painful, unfortunately, to the Russian people and the banking sanctions will be very painful to Putin himself. And it'll just get more and more painful if Putin doesn't decide to recede from his aggressive desire to take over the sovereignty of another nation. 
Well, thank you for, for answering that question for us. And I'm gonna go back to our program for today. This uh, breast cancer is obviously an issue that's deeply personal to you. So can you tell us a bit about your personal story and what it was like for you to battle cancer at age 41? Sure, my story is, is really important in terms of the topic that you're focused on. And that is that I was diagnosed when I was 41 years old. One day, Yasmin, I was the picture of health and the next day I was a cancer patient. And I found my lump myself when I was doing a routine self-exam in the shower. Um, I really had just had my, I just after I turned 40 years old, I had my first mammogram, which really came back clean, except for some calcifications. And that, that heightened my, uh, my attention on needing to pay a little attention to my breast health. So had I not had that first mammogram, I probably would not have necessarily done that self-exam um, or, or found the lump. And often women, particularly younger women, uh, are diagnosed at a later stage because, you know, we're not thinking we could get breast cancer. Uh, we, we focus on every other thing except our health. And so thankfully, I caught my breast cancer at a very early stage. Thankfully, I had health insurance. And thankfully, we weren't in the midst of a pandemic like we, like we have been. And I didn't have a lot of obstacles in my way to be able to go right to the doctor and, and, and get checked further. Um, it turned out that I had early stage breast cancer, but Yasmin, it also turned out that I was diagnosed after a genetic test with carrying the BRCA2 genetic mutation, which as an Ashkenazi Jewish woman made me five times more likely, I was five times more likely to carry that mutation. And I had between a 40 and 85% chance of getting breast cancer in my lifetime, having a recurrence and even getting ovarian cancer. So it was critical for me that I was diagnosed when I was because the chances of my getting more serious cancer and then potentially ovarian cancer were, were quite high. And so early detection is the key to survival. And it's just absolutely essential that we make sure that access to screenings is, is available for all women and that we make sure women get them. Your experience battling cancer overlapped or coincided with your time in office as a congresswoman. How yes. did that intersection of your personal health and your professional work inform your later work in Congress to address these issues? And of course, your, in your personal story, early detection was key to having a good outcome. Well, it was, they, they were really very intertwined. I was already serving in Congress when I was diagnosed and I kept my diagnosis private because we had very young children at the time and, you know, cancer is a very scary thing and I wanted to protect them from the worry that, you know, mommy might not uh, survive. Um, and then also I didn't want my breast cancer to define me. Cancer patients really lose all control or you certainly feel like you do. So making sure that I could control um, the information that I was, was giving out and that I could focus on my health as well as my job was important to me. But I knew when I finished my breast cancer journey and thankfully because it was caught early, I knew I was gonna be, or at least my doctors were telling me you know, that I could be confident that I was gonna be okay. I wanted to use the platform that I have as a member of Congress to help other women, to make sure that I could use, I mean, for Yasmin, I had been very involved in the, breast, the fight against breast cancer as a state legislator even, and I didn't know that I was at higher risk as an Ashkenazi Jewish woman of having a breast cancer mutate, genetic mutation. And if I didn't know, I knew so many other women didn't know that. So I did more research. I spent time working with the cancer advocacy groups and we introduced and it eventually became law, 
the Early Act, which is the Education and Awareness Requires Learning Young Act. About 25,000 women a year under 45 years old are diagnosed with breast cancer. And it, it's, it's just absolutely essential that we know that it's important to pay attention to our breast health, that you know what's normal for you so you know when something feels different. And so this legislation created a national education and awareness campaign that is based at the Centers for Disease Control, and it provides funding. I was able to get uh, that funding increased to $9 million a year at the end of last year when we reauthorized the legislation. And it also provides grant program funding to organizations that help young women deal with the unique challenges that we face when we're diagnosed with breast cancer. Because you know, it doesn't present in the same way as, as it does in older women. Sometimes it'll be nipple discharge. Sometimes it'll be redness on your breast tissue. And so making sure you know the warning signs and making sure that you know what you normally feel like is really, really critical. And so having those resources to get the word out to women that are at higher risk, like, like women like me, I am, and also African-American women, by the way, African-American women are less likely to get breast cancer, but they are more likely to die from what is known as triple negative breast cancer. That's a breast cancer that African-American women are more likely to get. And it's just so essential that if you're at higher risk, that you make sure that you pay attention and get those screenings. And you know, we women, we take care of everyone else in our life except ourselves. We have, we have to stop putting ourselves last and you have to make sure that you get those annual screenings and that you make sure that, uh, that you, you go to the doctor and get your clinical breast exams and your other gynecological appointments as well. You mentioned that in, in your case, you didn't have the pandemic as an obstacle to, to getting screening when you did that self-exam and, and noticed something. The U.S. National Cancer Institute has said it conservatively estimates 10,000 excess deaths over the next decade from undiagnosed or underdiagnosed uh, breast and colorectal cancers from COVID-19. Can you talk to us about what you've seen in terms of impact of the pandemic on screenings and prevention, um, what it's been like being a representative during that time, and just the ability of patients to be able to attend the routine doctor's appointments and screenings that they need to attend to make sure they are staying on top of their health? Sure, absolutely. One of the most disturbing statistics that has come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is that there has been, according to the Centers for Disease Control, an 85% drop in women getting screened for breast cancer and for other gynecological, gynecological cancers. And that we know over the next few years is going to result in diagnoses at a later stage and more deaths. And so I wrote a letter along with a number of my colleagues to the Centers for Disease Control and urged them to really get more on top of getting the word out and using the, the, the bully pulpit that they have to be able to help make sure that women know that it is safe, they, can, they, they, they should not put their own lives at risk when it comes to making sure that they can protect their breast health. Uh, I know it's, con it's been concerning because you know, the hospital beds were full, you, uh, you, know, you were trying to make sure that you were keeping yourself socially distant from others, but making sure that you go and get those screenings is absolutely critical. I, I just use myself as an example and countless women that I've spoken to uh, and, and all the statistics that say that early detection is the key to survival. That is why I didn't be able to do this interview with you because I did that self-exam because I went and got a mammogram right after the, I turned 40 years old. And 
you know, there are, there are those that have tried to make even that access more difficult. Um, I, I have filed and passed legislation that ensures that women can get a management between 40 and 50 years old, because we have a federal health agency, public health agency that has, uh, that has thrown obstacles in the path of women in that uh, 10 year age cohort. So it's really critical that, that all, every woman, once you turn 40 years old, get a mammogram, make sure that you know what's normal for you uh, so that you know when something feels different. I, uh, I, I just can't stress that enough. I want to follow up on something you you said right there, which is that you approached the CDC about this this very alarming trend. Can you tell us a bit more about how you and your colleagues decided to approach them and what the outcome of that effort has been? Well, we, we've, we've sent them a letter and we've been communicating with them directly because, I mean, obviously the Centers for Disease Control has a lot on their plate, but, and they, they are the ones that have highlighted how large the percentage drop in, in breast cancer screenings has been, <clears throat> but we need them to get the word out. We need them to really use resources to engage in public service announcements, to reach out to the healthcare community and help, <clears throat> help ensure that women know that Yes, you know, you've had to keep yourselves careful. You've had to be careful about not getting, not getting COVID. Yes, the hospitals have, have had to put off routine exams, but now it is time to go back out there and make sure you get screened. You know, Yasmin, I, I, I myself, I have to get an, an MRI every, I had a double mastectomy um, as part of my, uh, my treatments and I have to get an MRI every two years. And, and I delayed my MRI for that same reason, because it was a, a very concerning time. And, you know, thankfully, when I went and got my MRI, everything was okay. But we, we, we do all have to make sure that, uh, that, that we give ourselves the best chance to survive. It is so critical, no matter what age you are, that you continue to get those regular screenings. And we need help. We need to get, I mean, there's so much going on now. We're still really in the midst and throes of COVID in so many places in this country. And there's just been a real concern. People worry about whether, you know, are they going to have to wear a mask um, the, the, the whole time that they're in their, uh, that they're in their screening? And um, is it safe? Are, are the hospitals uh, able to accommodate, uh, accommodate me? So it's just, it's, it's a time when our public health agency really needs to make sure that we can help get the word out and expend resources to do so. Um, a major focus of your legislative work has focused on young women. The early act identifies gaps in education for young women. What's your message for young women, especially because you were very young when you were diagnosed with breast cancer? Well, like I said, as someone who, as a, in, in my professional life, spent a lot of time focused on legislation that would help women who were dealing with breast cancer. I thought I knew most of what there was to know about breast cancer. And then when I found my own lump and was diagnosed myself, I, I had no idea that I was at higher risk. There are so many women that don't know they're at higher risk. Ashkenazi Jewish women and women of, Jewish, uh, of, of Eastern European descent, we are five times more likely to carry that genetic mutation that increases our risk of breast cancer. Like I said, African-American women, they have a less of a chance of getting breast cancer or a lower rate of getting breast cancer, but more likely to die when they get it because they're more at risk for triple negative breast cancer. And also we have a risk of healthcare providers dismissing us. So often healthcare providers don't realize that 
women can and young women can and do to get breast cancer. So the early act that I passed into law and was able to get funds appropriated for also educates healthcare providers so that they know the warning signs and they know when a woman, a young woman comes in as, as concerned about something related to her breast health, not to just send her home and, uh, and tell her to wait and watch it or you know, not just dismiss them and tell them young women don't get breast cancer. Make sure that those healthcare providers are talking to young women if they do have breast cancer about things like fertility. Because if you do, God forbid, have breast cancer and you have to go through chemo and you haven't had children yet, there are so many healthcare providers, Yasmin, that don't talk to young women breast cancer patients about preserving their fertility. And there are so many other challenges. Like if you're dating someone, and you're not, you know, you're not yet married, you're dating someone and you've had a double mastectomy, when do you share with them that you have had, a, had breast cancer and, and how do you talk about that? It's, it's just a whole different set of issues that young women have. And the Early Act legislation really helped us focus resources and information, education and attention for young women and healthcare providers so that we make it more likely that a young woman, uh, because our mortality rates are higher, than the rest of the women's population that get breast cancer, so that we may more, make it more likely that we bring those mortality rates down for young women and that they're more likely to survive. And can you also talk to us about the reauthorization of the PALS Act and what that does for women? Yes, so there's an agency called the United States Preventative Services Task Force. It's a public health agency that unfortunately doesn't really include any cancer experts. And they have repeatedly since 2009 issued a recommendation that women between 40 and 50 don't need to get regular mammography. Um, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the breast cancer organizations and Medical, ex, medical oncology experts, um, mammograms, should, mammography should begin at 40. And so Congress since 2009, first in the Affordable Care Act and then through the PALS Act that I passed with former Congressman Renee Elmers, um, that legislation made sure that we put a moratorium on the implementation of that recommendation so that health insurance companies would continue to cover mammography beginning at age 40 then made sure that at the VA, women, who, uh, women veterans beginning at age 40 are able to also get those screenings because it's absolutely critical. There are thousands and thousands of women each year that are in that age cohort that are diagnosed with breast cancer. And we wanna make sure that they have every chance for survival. So that legislation is, uh, is we're trying to extend once again. And I, would, I expect that we'll pass that, that extension this year. In the meantime, we also included that language extending that protection in the Appropriations Act that I expect will pass in the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, can you give us your assessment of the cancer treatment resources in the U.S. and our screening capacity? If you had to grade it, what grade would you give our cancer treatment options for women um, in the United States? Well, I, I really, I have to, I, I would maybe give it a, uh, a a B minus right now, um, maybe maybe a C plus. It, it it leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, for example, beyond that, we have an affordability problem. If you don't have health insurance, then getting access to affordable mammography is very difficult. The Affordable Care Act makes mammography screenings free, but of course you have to have the coverage, and and we do have gaps in that coverage. 
I mean, millions of women were able to gain access to it once the Affordable Care Act passed, but we still have many more women that we need to make sure get coverage. But then, for example, if you were at higher risk, one thing I discovered in the last several years, and this actually happened to my own mother, if you have a genetic mutation and you are on Medicare, you can't, if you have a risk of having a genetic mutation like I do, and you're a Medicare patient, you have to be, Medicare requires you to be diagnosed with breast cancer already before they will cover your screening. Even though I was a, breast, a BRCA2 mutation carrier and I had had breast cancer, my own mother could not get Medicare to cover a screening to see whether she carried the mutation unless she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Well, we shouldn't wait till women have breast cancer before we make sure that they, we can test them for a mutation that puts them at higher risk. We wanna know whether they're at higher risk so that they can take steps to prevent themselves from getting breast cancer. So I introduced the Reducing Hereditary Cancer Act with Lisa Murkowski and Senator Ben Cardin and, uh, and Congressman Fred Upton, bipartisan, bicameral legislation that will say, Medicare, you need to cover genetic screening when a close relative has a, a, a genetic mutation, and you need to make sure you cover the prophylactic treatment that a patient may want to seek if they have it. Because it's much better to make sure people don't get breast cancer than it is to have to deal with all the ramifications once they do. It's common sense. I, I kind of can't believe that Medicare doesn't already cover this. And I think um, we have time for one more question. And I think this is a really important one, especially given your personal experience. What other work do you think needs to be done to provide greater equity in cancer care among women, especially in minority communities or some of the communities you've highlighted who are at increased risk? That's our biggest problem right now is that we really have such disparate access to gynecological screenings. First, you know, you have to have access to health, affordable health care, whether that's through health insurance coverage or through a community health center or through your employer, through health care coverage through your employer. But there are large gaps in 13 states, for example. Um, there are legislatures that haven't closed the Medicare coverage gap. And so nearly a million people don't have access to health care and co coverage in those states if they can't afford it. We have to make sure that we are investing more resources in, in making sure that minority, women in minority communities are able to get access to those critical screenings, and we need more outreach. There are so many women culturally who you know, live in and among communities where you know, gynecological health is not something that you talk about out loud. It's not something that they necessarily talk about with their daughters. Um, and so that generationally gets passed on, uh, that reticence gets passed on. And so through education, through access, through affordability, and through health insurance coverage, we have to make sure that we close all of those gaps because the consequence to not doing that is death. We're unfortunately out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today, Representative Wasserman Schultz. I know you took a lot of time out of your schedule, and we really appreciate getting to hear about your work and your personal story. It's my absolute pleasure and passion to be able to help make sure, help you help other women know that they should get screened and that they are potentially at risk, and we have to make sure we save lives. So you're helping us save lives. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.